Today on Sagittarian Matters, advice on publishing, weathering copycats, bad exes, bad dreams, writing ethics, writing practices, and more. With my very special guest, Michelle T. Stay tuned. Dawn Riddle is a multidisciplinary artist from Portland, Oregon. She's a brilliant painter, weaver, photographer, musician, playwright, videographer, and unsolicited vegan food review correspondent. Please enjoy this review from friend to the show, Dawn Riddle. Hello, um, this is Dawn again with an unsolicited vegan food review. I am speaking in the break room of uh, the office where I work and where Morgan, friend of the show Morgan, also works. Um, there are many snacks here and I would like to tell you about one of the only snacks that I eat here. Um, it is Snyder's of Hanover, the pretzel people. Uh, it's gluten-free pretzel sticks. Um, they have a little checklist. It says great taste, no soy, no dairy, no casein. I don't know if I'm saying that right. And no egg. So definitely vegan. Um, and it's been certified gluten-free. Um, these are, I don't know that I'd say good, but I do know that I can't stop eating them. Their first ingredient is cornstarch. And then their second ingredient is potato starch and third ingredient, tapioca starch. So it's just, they taste like what they are, which is just powders, um, dusty powders. And then they also have a weird thing written on the back, which says, we are dippable and crunchy and best of all gluten-free. That's how we describe these delicious pretzel sticks. So I don't know how we are dippable and crunchy, but then also we are describing. Um, but that's, that's basically my review. Um, if you have these for free in your office, I would recommend eating them and having them suck all the moisture out of your mouth, but still somehow be fairly enjoyable. All right. Until next time, Don Riddle signing off. Michelle T. is the author of over a dozen books, including Valencia, Against Memoir, and Black Wave. She is also the co-creator of Sister Spit and Drag Queen Story Hour. Michelle's new book, Knocking Myself Up, is out right now. In Portland, people, if you're listening to this on Saturday, August 6th, we will be live in conversation on this very day at Powell City of Books at 2 p.m. Find out more at powells.com or at the Sagittarian Matters Instagram page. Now, please enjoy my talk with very special friend to the show, Michelle T. Oh my God, wait, I have to show you really quick. I got this book in the mail 
100 yeah. Deadly Skills, The SEAL Operative's Guide to Eluding Pursuers, Evading Capture, and Surviving Any Dangerous Situation. At first, I was like, why would you have that? That's what a stupid book. And now I'm just like, oh, as somebody who watches a lot of true crime, and I believe you might as well, that's actually not a bad book to have. Well, I was looking at the Amazon reviews because I, you know, so I mean, if a case this ends up on the podcast, just to yeah. let people, you know. So I'm doing this book about somebody who fakes their own death. So, you know, this kind of, this kind of book mm -hmm. is in my, you know, it's kind of in my internet. We're advertising to you universe. Um, and so then I was looking at it and I was like, well, this actually could be very helpful. And then I was reading the reviews and it's just all like, um, I don't want to say emerging crime writers. It's all like men in their basements trying to write crime and fiction, trying to get it right by buying this like psychotic book about like disposing of a body. Are you serious? That's what's in there. Build a vehicle, steal a vehicle. All right, hold on. Hotel safety and awareness. I need that. Yeah. Um, we're, the, we're ladies who stay in hotels. Yeah. Yeah. How to steal a car could be really helpful sometimes. This one, uh, we could Construct use. Construct a rectal concealment. This is about <gasps> like putting your knife in a tampon applicator and shoving it up your ass. Oh my God. That's outrageous. <laughs> this book has given me more than what I even asked for. Create a repelling harness. Okay. <laughs> Survive a drowning attempt. Okay. Like How do you survive yeah. a drowning attempt? Okay. Well, you're giving your listeners serious skills right now. Hardcore well, skills. Courtesy I mean, of this book. I'm sorry to say there is a part in here about surviving an active shooter. That's the only part that I actually read end to oh end that God. I was like, oh my God, but we can't go there right now in this podcast. P no, ladies, I, I understand. Germs. Yeah. Ladies and gentle them. Um, hold on. Sending an, an anonymous email. How do I do it? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Turning that's something everybody needs to know. <laughs> Where did it go? Okay. I did. I did read the, how to survive a drowning attempt the other day. Cause can I you surmise like, it. I mean, can you summarize it's, it? It's basically you, um, you can try. So you have to, you know, what is it? It's like something about the, the, the air in your lungs is what's going to make you buoyant. Yeah. So really trying to bounce off the bottom of the lake or whatever, if you can and bounce yourself back up so that you can get some air and kind of try to like ricochet yourself off the bottom to land. Okay. So you just bounce up and down until you wear out your attacker. You just well, yo -yo in and out of water to, gasping for air. What we're imagining is that your attacker has bound your wrists and oh, your ankles. Oh God! Oh no! Okay, and then I see. thrown you into the ocean. Hold on. Let me see where I can. Let me. Maybe you can Snow White some nibbly sea creatures to come and bite through your bound your your your, your bondage. Like cross enemy borders by air. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> this is what's going on over here in Tahoe. Wow, that is really cool. That is really cool. So, What's going on over here is I got, I got um, one of Marcella Kroll's Oracle decks. I got her nature nurture deck. Ooh, it's really cute. It's all, um, you know, images inspired by nature that, so there's like Raven means magic. Mm. There's skull equals death. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. You know, moon equals timing, stuff like mm. that. Yeah. 
Michelle, I don't know if we're what we're allowed to say because we make our own rules, but we're we're, oh. we're gonna we're gonna do a queer history deck. Yeah, we can say it. Can we say like, it? I think Let's- it's fine to say because you know, I mean, we're obviously not under any contract to not say it. So the only reason would be because we're afraid some devious homosexual would steal our amazing idea. But here's the thing. We cannot be stolen because nobody can do art and you're like, like you do. And nobody's going to conceptualize these people and write about it. Like I do. So it's like we, and like, nobody's going to have the magic of us two together. So go ahead, losers, try to steal from us. You'll fail. That's how I feel. I like that's, I think that's always been, you know, not just to segue right into advice. That's <laughs> always been your advice for me at different points in time where I've been like, Michelle, this person's ripping off Ugh. my art. This person just like stole my aesthetic and drew almost my exact same picture. Ugh. And I, different times where I felt kind of bummed and you t- gave me that same kind of advice of just like, there's nothing to do. You just get to remember that you're still you and you're always going to be you. And that, and that's true. Yeah. The, and that the, the post- fakers are going to, you know, they're going to burn out on it at some point. Cause it's not really coming from their heart. Yeah. Um, the po the pose yours, but to just, to, just to wheel back. So listeners, you know, get, get excited, get jacked, create some buzz. I don't know how, but we're making a queer history tarot deck. Yeah. It's really fantastic. Your, your art is so joyful and fun and your renditions of these people is so loving and fantastic. Thanks friend. I feel like this, you know, these cards beg for their own podcast episodes at some point for sure. Yeah. Or they're on like mini series. Oh yeah. Mini series. Like in how many, how many cards are in the deck? 78. We'll Our do own a 78, 78 episode, episode podcast. Mini yes. I love it. Yes, well, cause each one that. could be like really short. Yeah. Like it could daily. be just like a little synopsis on like who this person is. Yeah. Why we like them for that card. Yeah. What the card's about. Boom. Yeah. I love it. Um, I do too. The, the garbage truck I hired to come around right as we were recording has shown up. So it's time, Great. it's time to start. Okay. I think, I feel like us going to the tune of a garbage truck makes sense. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. Okay. Dear Sagittarian matters. We're getting right into advice, Michelle. All right, great. Let's do it. Uh, so this is dear Nicole and Michelle, you've had several major writing projects as well as all of your other awesome organizing work at the end of a big project. I feel like there's a lot of external pressure, real or imagined to just keep plowing through and diving intensely into the next project, but I'm not sure that's the best move. How do you deal with the post major project transition phase? That is such a good question. Signed major project transition in Montreal. Um, right. well, I mean, I, I feel of, of multiple minds where I feel like the momentum of that project can get you the contract for your next project. Yes. And you're going to be missing out on a little bit of that post big project depression by just <laughs> chasing your next hit. And, um, <laughs> But then also I kind of feel like the publicity cycle for me has always been the natural breathing out after being holed up. That makes sense. What do you think? That makes sense. I I totally agree with you. I mean, I just sold a book, like, I don't know, I guess it's like last year I sold a book. It's coming out this year, it's coming out in August. Um, 
and now I'm in the process of like, you know, I, I just did my final, my final round of like copy edits on it, not that long ago. And I sent a proposal for my next book into my agent, um, like last week. And it is, exa it's exactly that. It's like, can we, can we keep the momentum going? You know, like, can we sell another book while, um, you know, while this publisher even is excited about the book that they're working with, you know, blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah. Um, but I also like, yeah, I'd like a break, you know, but guess what? Oh, well, you know what I mean? Like, it's just not, it's not um, feasible if I want to keep sort of producing and, and, and like earning money and like keep this whole career thing that is a hundred percent self-propelled in the air, you know? So yeah. different people I'm sure have different ways of dealing with this. Like if I had like, um, I don't know, like familial money, perhaps like, you know what I mean? I would maybe be like, I think I'll take six months and think about my next work. Or, you know, I do know people who um, are very, very successful writers, but they also have academic careers, you know? And so they can take a little bit of a break between their projects and because they have this other income source. But I think it's hard when you're relying on these projects to be your income source. So really we're talking about capitalism, yeah. right? Like in a perfect world, yes. Yes, transitioning projects in Montreal, you know, I, I would definitely chill between projects for sure. In fact, in a perfect world, maybe I'd never write again. I'd just travel and like lay on pillows. I don't know at this point, but, um, but you know, I, I think it just depends on like what you're wanting for yourself and what you're needing for yourself. That kind of sometimes controls um, your, the trajectory of your ambition under capitalism. Yeah. I, I mean, I almost wonder, cause they're also talking about organizing or maybe that feeling you know, I've heard someone described this feeling as when they're on a book tour and on the book tour, someone's like, what's your next book? Huh, like, yeah. Jesus, it's like, I just gave birth. And like, as they're scraping out the placenta, <laughs> you're asking me when I'm having my next kid. Totally. I totally oh my gosh. Get that feeling. But I just, I wonder like how much time off do you need? Because in reality, you know, one could pitch their next book and just build in two weeks for themselves to have a vacation totally. in their proposed timeline. Yeah. Or one could so be true. like, I am going to organize another conference, uh, starting this day. So like you have that plan in place, but you're giving yourself that buffer of however much you need, whether it's like, and if you take two weeks off, make it like hardcore off. Yeah. Real off, like real off, like off no the grid. phones, no thinking of that, just something totally different. That's restorative. That lets yeah. you clear your mind. So you even get to have a choice and be like, do I want to do this? Yes. But I want to say something about capitalism and books, which is, you know, if the publisher's excited about you, that does seem like a good time to sell your next book because sometimes the book numbers don't come in the way they thought they would. And oh, so yeah, if you wait, that happens. So if you wait a long time and then the publisher's like, well, this only sold this many copies and we thought it was going to sell this many copies. So now we don't know if we want to give you another book deal. Everybody, this is like the hard truth is like, if you're, if you're at, oh, if you're a beginning writer and your first book, it's a huge advance. That's a lot of pressure for you to make back that huge advance. Cause if you don't, that's a strike against you. Yeah. So it's, it's actually something better about getting a small advance because you can earn that back. And then the publisher doesn't feel like they lost money on you. It's so true. It's so true. Um, I have had two, what I consider big advances and one, I think I'll never earn back. Um, 
and one I just earned back. <gasps> My Good. modern tarot book earned back. Mm, mm, I got a mm. check. I couldn't believe it. So thank you to everybody out there who buys Modern Tarot and recommends it and posts it on, on social media. Cause that made a huge difference in my life. Oh my gosh. That's so yeah. nice. Keep sharing. Yeah, totally. Um, and that also bodes well for our queer tarot. Oh yeah, it does. Doesn't it? Love that. Thanks for doing that footwork <laughs> of writing an entire book <laughs> and having an entire career. Okay. You know, it took years to earn that back though. I mean, I think it's taken like six years to earn it back. Maybe. I mean, that's the reality. It's like five or six years. It's basically like publishers are just entities that are giving you a loan. Yeah. Like publish, like every single thing that happens, you have to pay back. So like, if you see an artist getting flown on an incredible book tour and like they're staying in nice hotels, uh, the, the, all that is getting accounted for by the publisher. It's not a gift. The publisher's like, okay, we spent $200 on this hotel. We spent $300 on your flight. We spent this much on meals, this much on publicity, this much on this. Like you have to pay all of that back. And they're only making those that like they're gamblers. It's like, they're gambling on that. Right. But to be clear, you don't have to pay it back out of your pocket. Your no, book has to earn your book it back has to for earn the it publisher. Back. So you never are on the, you never actually have to no. you know, pay anybody money back. You know, that's like, that's their gamble. And if they lose, they lose, but, but then you lose in the long run. Yeah. Yeah, It affects you in the long run. It does. But I think about this when people are complaining about bands writers, when they're like, this band wanted green M&Ms and broccoli stocks and Perrier. And you're like, they're paying for that. Like the, the club isn't giving them that as a gift. It's all coming out of their, their cut of the money at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. People aren't that nice. I mean, I guess like there's like rich companies that give expensive things to rich people in exchange for promotion, but that's yeah. no offense. Listeners is probably not what's happening here, <laughs> but the listeners of Sagittarius matters. Okay. Not here, that demographic. We're going to pivot to something from the stars. Ooh. Dear Sagittarius matters. I have been with my wife for nearly a decade and we are very happy. Congratulations. This is is an Australian. Should I try? Dare I? Dare you. I I mean, I don't know. I I think it's okay. (laughs) That was good. That was really good. Thanks. Let me read it normal. Dear Sagittarius Matters, I have been with my wife for nearly a decade and we are very happy. So why do I have recurring dreams in which I am back with my evil exes suffering through bad relationships again? In these dreams, there's always a barrier that stops me from being with my wife, even though I want to. Do I have unprocessed baggage about my exes or am I just insecure from anxious in Australia? Oh, I would say hundred percent unprocessed baggage. Yeah. And I don't even think there's anything that anxious in Australia needs to do about it. I think this is exactly your psyche working it out. Huh. I think like you are doing it. That's what I think. Um, or like, we're just haunted by our own lives. And that's, that's part of being a human on earth is that we're just like haunted by our past. Like I have recurring dreams all the time that I am drunk. Um, I'm like on a sister spit tour. I'm wasted. I'm locked out of my hotel room. I've lost my purse. I can't find my cigarettes. And I like come to holding a drink and just sort of realize that I'm sober. And then I start plotting how I'm going to hide it from people or lie about it. Or I'm like, oh, it's okay. You're sober. This is beer and that's okay. Like it's just some sort of crazy thing. So, I mean, I haven't drank alcohol for like 20 years, but my 
I was still processing it because it was just, a, it's a huge part of my psyche, you know? And I think that probably this person, these relationships really um, impacted them, you know? And, and, and maybe, I, I don't know, maybe now that you're in this really lovely relationship, it allows you to be like, oh, wow. Like on some level you're comparing and contrasting and you're, you're able to see even more clearly like how bad the other ones were because you've hit a new baseline of healthy relationship. I, I kind of think it's probably a, a good thing. It's like, I think these dreams are probably coming from something that's actually very good in your life, which is this healthy relationship. Yeah. But um, yeah, maybe, I don't know. What do you think, Nicole, as a dreamer? I mean, I think if you want to do some gay work around it, I would just think like, what, what is the, what is the quality of that relationship that's being portrayed in the dream? Like, is it your feeling of being trapped? Is it something about that person? Like, what is the suffering part? And then what is the trapped part? And just do a little journaling about it. And you can even ask yourself, like, what, what, what does this person represent? What does this relationship represent? Are there ways that I think this is impacting my present day? Like, are there ways that I see this feeling sneaking in? Um, and then you could just have a little back and forth with yourself or you could ask yourself some questions about it and then let yourself answer. I love that. You can yeah. do tarot readings on it too. It's always fun to do tarot readings about dreams and to be like, what does this dream mean? Like you could even Google like tarot reading spread dreams. And there's like all these spreads out on the internet mm. that will like kind of guide you towards um, a tarot reading that will hopefully illuminate some of your dreams for you. I'm such a like literal, I'm such like a, I don't know if it's like I'm a bad writer. Like I'm just like such a <laughs> literal person when it comes to interpreting dreams where I'm just like, well, obviously this person represents this and this I mean, represents I, this. Maybe it's because like, we're both memoirists. I'm very literal also. And I think yeah. the same thing about dreams. I don't think that it's like, oh, I dreamt of my shitty ex. And so that really means it's like, you dream, I dreamt of my shitty ex because I have a shitty ex that impacted my psyche. And like, you know, on some level, like those wounds are still there. And like, probably those wounds predated that shitty ex. Like I had the sort of corresponding like outlet for that shitty ex to plug into. Right. And that's what yeah. happened. So it's like, you know, mm. deeper even than that shitty ex. It's like, what formative like childhood wounds do I have that made me vulnerable to that flavor of a shitty ex? Oh yeah. I like that idea of you're the outlet. For right. That particular plug at that particular time. Yeah. I think it's really true. I remember I was in couples counseling with an ex once. Um, and she said, wow, you both are perfect, miserable matches for each other. People say the darndest things. <laughs> I mean, she was right. And she was actually lovely. Like for, for a therapist who had that terrible style where they just look at you and nod and go, uh-huh, which uh -huh. I find extremely unhelpful. She was actually there was something lovely about her that radiated like understanding and compassion that made it work more for her than it did for other therapists. Yeah. But I yeah, have, she was right. We were miserable matches for each other. I know. Um, so a, a dear friend of mine who is dating someone else who's dear to me when they went to couples counseling together in the olden day, the therapist said they were like a fucked up yin yang. Cause they were each like the nightmare version of each other's yeah, I styles. Mean, Oh my God. I mean, I think that that is something that a lot of people experience. And I think that that is a lot, that is something that's in a lot of people's process to healing their relationship patterns 
is like bottoming out kind of with somebody who's really bad for you. That makes you have to look at a little bit, like what's your part. Yeah. Um, the other thing I would say to this person to wrap up their advice question is yeah, see if there's anything you can do towards trying to make choices in your dream. Like if it's like you writing on a piece of paper to put under your pillow, here's my intention for my sleep tonight or for my dreamscape. Cause I find there've been times where I've had this kind of dream that feels very emotionally weighted where it's like, I'm running from somebody and I'm scared and I'm trying to get my loved ones. And then when I just make the choice in the dream, like I can't outrun this forever. I have to turn and face it. Like when you make those kind of choices that are like the metaphorical thing you have to do. And then in your dream, you can be brave and just try it. That feels better to me than feeling like a victim of my dream. I agree with you hundred percent. That is so awesome. It's a little challenging to be able to become so lucid and aware in your dream for sure. Yeah. But like, there's, um, you know, there's this whole tradition of trying to f- figure out how to lucid dream deliberately. Like there's things you can do to sort of train for it. Um, mm. So that's, I mean, depending on how tormented you are by these dreams, it might be worth your while to, to start like lucid dreaming training so you can make those different choices. I had, I had a dream, um, again, these alcohol dreams that I have. I had a dream once where I sort of like was going to drink. And then I was like, you're sober. And I poured it out and I woke up and I was like, you got sober in your dream. Your dream psyche is finally sober. Oh my God. It felt like really incredible. But of course, you know, the drunk dreams came right back after that. So I I didn't, I've relapsed in my, on the astral plane. I'm not, I don't have continued sobriety on the astral plane, but it was well, really congratulations. interesting. <laughs> I like you like gave yourself a chip in the morning. I did. I had a dream chip. It was very cool. I have one more thing to say to this person, which is, I kind of wonder if you just need to make some peace with your exes, either within yourself or in real life. Like if there's anything you can do to make peace with these memories or with these choices you made or with these relationships that you were, that you stayed in for whatever reason they had to happen to get you where you are now. I just wonder if some, some kind of just again, journaling kind of, or meditation or like kind of thing where like you pray for someone to have everything that you want for yourself, just that kind of very like, and you know, that you might have a moment to be like that bitch, but just like, think like, what are like, Oh God, I hope this person is like loved and supported and seen and gets everything they want in the world. And just like, you know, whatever praying means to you, if it means that you're like talking to your dog about it or talking to mother nature, you know, whatever thing, but just making some peace around these people. So that also, they don't just exist as ghouls in your psyche. Yeah. It's so true. Cause they're it's just really people true. who you fell in love with at some point. And then, and, yeah. And whenever people behave really badly, like there's something, there's a problem, you know? So it's like, you just think like if that person was happier or healthier or less damaged themselves or had like more access to to heal themselves, they probably would have acted really differently. Yeah. And I I mean, just, you know, we're both on a therapeutic path of looking at different people and be like, gosh, they sure did the best they could. And it doesn't mean that that's what you needed or that it was very good. Mm -hmm. But at the time when people did the best they could, and then if they didn't do very good, yeah, they were, they were in pain. Yeah. And that can't be really hard to maintain that, that very Buddhist, um, reality. I do think that is the reality. Yeah. It is, it is hard to maintain that. Well, cause then, cause like my, my, whatever it is, my boss manager comes in and is like, is that really the best they could do? I think they could have done a little more. Like, I want to like go back in time and stage mom or push people yeah. to like do, but that's just not how 
this, you know, we don't know what attachment wounds were coming up for people. Oh yeah. What their histories were, what their coping skills were, totally. what kinds of freakouts they were having. And like, it probably wasn't their intention when they met you to hurt you. Probably not. Probably and, not. And it just happens sometimes. Yeah. Anyway, you know, not say like if this, anyway, all right. I'm not going to take this as the most extreme example. You're not. Why not? Well, I'm just, it just like, doesn't make it like devil's advocate of just like every one of their exes was like a caveman dragging them around by their hair. Like, I just don't think that's probably the reality in most situations. Right. Well, yeah, I guess we don't know. We don't know. We don't know, but we don't know. (laughs) Some people have allowed themselves to become monstrous in their behavior. Yeah. Yeah. And like, it's a real shame that that's the best they could do at that time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. For whatever reason. Yeah. Dear Sagittarius Matters, what does accountability look like when you're writing about people from your past? Dun, dun, dun. From writer in Wisconsin. I, I tried to ask this person a follow-up question and it didn't respond quick enough, but I was like, do you mean for the writer or do you mean like the characters? But they didn't My write back in time. The writer, right? My guess it's probably the writer because that is such a classic question that people writing about their life struggle with. What does accountability look like when you're writing about people from your past? What does that mean? Right. I, I get. Are you, you're like not sure what they mean by the question? Mm-hmm. Yeah. My, what do you my think? guess is, my guess is that they mean is like, how can they be like fair to the, to the person and to the time period? Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. that's my guess, you know, I mean, you're going to, cause if you think about like accountability, it's like, you know, theoretically after this work is out in the world, you're going to have to be accountable for the things that you wrote about other people. Yeah. So like, how do you do it in a way it's really challenging. I mean, I'm about to, you know, knock on wood, hopefully start a book that is definitely going to be talking a lot about a relationship where I feel like the person best was very <laughs> the person doing their best <laughs> can, I, can I pause and say I could think about like my worst exes and like mm-hmm. one of them was having a mental health crisis breakdown mm-hmm. and I'm like whoa that's that person is acting like that feral creature in every relationship and is in a lot of pain because it chases people away yeah all they want is closeness yeah I think about my other worst relationship and I think like I can be mad at that person and be like whoa that person's bar for like how to treat other people was very low. Yeah. And like, I'm mad at them. And also I feel compassion for like, that's what they felt like they had to do. I think that that perspective that you're talking about right now is the ideal perspective. I think that that's like, that's ideally what we want. Right. Cause it's like, we're not trying to like throw our own experience under the bus and like Mm-mm. excuse away what we survived. So like, yeah. we still have to have like, hold people to a sense of, you know, you do want to hold people to a standard and also maintain your own standards for what is acceptable ways for you to be treated. But at the same time, yeah, understand that if this person fell short, there's probably something going on that they weren't able to rise to the occasion, you know? Mm. Um, But so, yeah, I'm going to have to write about this person who really wasn't able to rise to the occasion. (laughs) Um, Spectacularly spectacularly <laughs> disappointing in the yeah. way I was treated. Um, and I'm going to have to, for my own sake, for the sake of, um, 
the various, various um, you know, ways that we're still in one another's lives. Um, I'm going to have to really not foreground my hurt feelings about what this person did. And I'm really going to have to um, try to live in the idealized Nicole George's best practices of compassion um, of like, okay, if they did these things, like, you know, why, and, and, you know, and it might have to, I might have to pull on my, um, any talents I might have as a fiction writer. I'm mostly a memoir writer, but I have written fiction, but I will have to imagine why, how, why, why could I, how could I imagine a person making a choice like this in a way that I would have compassion for that, for that person, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I, I really, I, I relate to this question and I just think that, you know, I think that when you write for revenge, and I think that that sounds mm. like such an extreme thing to say, because like, I think most writers would be like, I don't write for revenge. And I certainly would say that. But in that moment, when you're hurt, when your feelings are hurt, you might not be able to resist a little sentence that is just like, there's, I've just, I've just enacted a little bit of justice for myself with this little sentence, you know? Um, I find that like, in the long run, those little movements, they don't continue to give you that justice. I feel like as time changes and you heal a little bit and people become more human um, and less like monsters with the passage of time, it, it can look, it can look a little, I feel like, you know, if you, if you want to play the long game, you, you really want to be as compassionate towards the people you're writing about as possible. Um, because yeah. I do think that that's more of the, of the ultimate truth. And I think that, you know, as your pain fades, if you, if any, any sort of justice you try to enact within your writing ends up just looking a little petty, perhaps. I mean, of course yeah. it, dep it depends on the stakes, right? Mm -hmm. But I feel like even, even when I was writing about like, for instance, like, you know, my, my stepfather who was, you know, sexually abusive to me and my sister, like I even wanted to not create, to write about him as a one-dimensional monster because even he is not that, nobody is, right? Um, and so, you know, there's a fine line between like, I didn't want to seem like I was apologizing for him also. Like I've read books where other people are talking about their abusive parents and you can tell that they just are still holding on to that. Like, I don't want anyone to be mad at my parents, you know? Oh yeah. And I'm just sort of like, as your reader, I demand to be mad at your parents right now. Like, yeah. I don't like that. That was the best that they could do. And it's okay for yeah. me to have a feeling about it. But also I think it's, it is fair on some level to show the big picture of somebody's um, existence and, and the wounds and the problems that made them, you know, even people that we can all agree, like that person's a monster, like, okay, but something you should probably made them into a monster. Like people usually aren't born monsters. So I think that it's um, just from the perspective of being a writer, I think it's a better craft to be able to show all of that as much as possible. Um, and if you want sort of more personal catharsis or personal justice, you might want to look elsewhere than in your writing for that. If you're writing in any way professionally, AKA you want it to be published, you want readers, et cetera. Does that make sense? Yeah. I always have students in my workshops or when we're talking about character for every scene, they show someone being a jerk, show them the opposite. Like in any show relationship being a jerk too. Yes. And same thing for yourself. Like yeah. any of your characters make a list. Am I showing my mom 
like, cause the thing is, and I've said this to my students before, but I don't know if I say it on the podcast, but like a bad relationship didn't start the first day you met that person. Probably they weren't like, I'm a total asshole. Let's do this. Probably you fell in love with them. And so if you bring the readers along with you falling in love, then when they disappoint you, the reader feels it more. Yeah. Reader feels disappointed too. And also when you give your characters, like your stepdad, like when you give these people a complex life, then we get to see that this thing was not that they did was not just because they were a monster, but because it was a choice they made and the huge implications of those choices. Like this person was like not born a monster. This person made a choice, went through with it. And now we're getting to see like, oh, we all have choices and you can make this choice. And here is the aftermath of that choice. Here's how much it fucks up other people's lives. Absolutely. And that's such a much more interesting story, I think. And it's like, maybe it sounds like really crass to be talking about like your life as a story, but we're writing our lives as stories. So we can't, we can't avoid that reality either, you know, even as it seems sometimes to like objectify some of the most like vulnerable moments of our lives. Like that is also what we're signing up for when we do this kind of writing. I mean, and you do that so well in your books too. Like that book. I feel like I fail a lot also, but no, like the Chelsea whistle. I just, I love, I need to reread it. I love it so much. Like you have your mom who couldn't protect you or take your side against your stepdad, but you have all these little moments where she's trying to care for you in the ways that she can or has accessible and the ways that those weren't good enough, but the ways that you can see her making the gestures. And I think like those, like anyone, like if you're writing about your parents or your exes or whatever, like what are the moments that made you feel like maybe this could still be my mom? Maybe this person could still be in a relationship. Maybe I could still be in this relationship because I could maybe get this thing. Oh yeah, totally. And like showing that thing is important. It is important. And it's, it's sad. And, but sadness brings depth to a story. So it's like, but you also need to be in a place where you can handle that sadness, you know? So you need to be, you need to be kind of okay sometimes. And I I feel like, you know, what we're talking about here too, it's like, how wounded and raw are you about whatever the situation is? Like if you're super wounded and raw and not, and not healed from it, or, I mean, like in, you know, acknowledging that healing is something that goes on often for a lifetime, but like, if you're not at a stage in your healing where you can sort of grapple with these kind of complicated things, then maybe just like, it's not the best thing for you to write about. I don't know. I don't, I mean, I, I have to say like, you know, with my mom's, my family stuff, I'll write it. I mean, like calling Dr. Laura, could I have used five more years of therapy before I wrote that book? Sure. Be a different book, Nicole. It would would be be a a different different book. book. And sometimes there's a lot of value in seeing portrayed the rawness of hurt and the after the consequence of people's actions, the way that they, you know, when we haven't taken the high road yet, because lots of people don't. And it can be really satisfying also to see people in their anger because, you know, as um, I don't know, a lot of people, people like us, like, you know, femi, you know, female raised queer people, like we're often taught not to have anger. And so Mm. it can be really empowering to be like, I'm actually going to be angry because, you know, I, I feel like I'm worth more than this. And, you know, even if behind that anger is often a lot of sadness. Yeah. Um, what do I want to say to button up this question? I want to say, you know, 
uh, your story is not there to like clobber somebody else or be like, I have a platform and you don't fuck you. Uh, it, but it is to show your emotional truth and it's not journalism. And so you get to show your emotional truth, however you want, and you can disguise those people, however you want. And whatever happens in your story, it doesn't mean that your character deserved to get treated that way. Yeah. But it just means you get to make this rich tapestry of choices and desire and motives. And so it doesn't seem like somebody just showed up one day and got clobbered and then was like, I'm going to stick around. And just in case we're wrong. And, and this person is asking about the accountability of other people. Like if you're hoping that your writing is going to sort of push somebody to be accountable or bring about accountability, stop right now. It's not going to happen. It's going to be so messy for you. That's my guess. It's just a waste of your time. Yeah. I think so too. Projects, books take so long. So then for you to do that, it's like that, like what, like that resentment is taking poison and expecting the other person to die. This is like you just like mainlining poison Mm -hmm. and then like waiting for the fallout and said, like, I wrote about this horrible girlfriend and calling Dr. Laura, who just like demolished my life in the gnarliest of ways. And like the book coming out, that person just like has such a huge ego that they were like, I'm glad you told your story. Like they were just happy to be they were just happy oh to be there, God. but I had to, but like to get the transformative thing, I had to just write them an honest letter about how our relationship impacted me. Oh, that's the, like the direct communication was actually the thing that moved that relationship one notch towards, I don't want to burn down your house. It wasn't spending five years on a graphic novel. Right. Right. Like that was for me. Your book is for you make that other, what the other process is also for you, but like, it's much less laborious actually. Yeah. Than writing of, of taking five years to do heavily illustrated graphic novel. Yeah. I'm having like reporters ask you about your relationship. (laughs) So awkward. Yeah. You Um, created the situation. So all you can do is answer their fucking questions. (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) Today's episode is brought to you by Josephine McRobbie, Shoshana Ruth Wechter, Joey Soloway, and special guest producer, spouse to the show, Kaya Wilson. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, in particular, producer Chris Sutton, please send $5, $5 million, that's your business, via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. Or, this just in, he's got a Venmo. Hell Books. That's H-E double hockey sticks books. Thank you for your support, and we look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it, too. Don't be scared. That's just Ponyo's speaking voice. Dear Michelle. Oh, geez. Any advice for divorced parenting with new adults in the mix? From Divorced in Delaware. Oh, man. With um, new adults in the mix. New adults in the mix. Jeez, that is... Man, that is hard because every every situation is so is so uh, in, is so specific and individual to those people and their styles and their relationships. Um, gosh, uh, I mean, I don't know. Like, is it this person has a new parent in the mix? You know, is it like their new partner or does the co-parent have a new person in the mix? Um, I think that for myself, what has been a really helpful guiding light um is just to remember that the more adults who love my child the better for my child 
Um, and that's that, you know, and if, if those adults happen to threaten me, like that's on me and I need to like breathe through it, go to therapy, talk to friends, whatever. Um, and you know, it's not, it's, it's not helpful to really try to control the role that that other person might have in your child's life. Um, I'm mm. presuming of course that everybody's healthy and there's nothing untoward happening that nobody has like bad vibes, you know, but it's, it's just maybe awkward or, or maybe the parents have bad vibes to each other, but everyone is doing right by the child. Right. That's what's most important. And I think if it's, if that wasn't the case, I think that would have come up in the question. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've definitely, um, been threatened by, um, you know, the other people in my child's life, um, especially at the beginning of my divorce, cause everything was very new. Um, and certainly things have happened at this point, like a couple of years later, that if they had happened early on, I would have been hor horribly, you know, freaked out and threatened. But I was just really afraid of the unknown. And I was sitting in a lot of worst case scenarios that were really, now I see they were really impossible. Like, you know, my child loves me so much and your child loves you so much. And like, that's just unbreakable. And, and you can just really trust that. Um, and, you know, and I've seen my co-parent get really, really threatened by the person in my life and, you know, and have had to like help them, um, tough love them through it a little, a little bit, you know, because really like there's, there's nothing anyone can do about any of it. Like, I, you know, and, and it's all, and that is all for the best, you know, like that, 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 that my kid is having, you know, positive relationships with all these different adults who like love him in different ways and, you know, show their love in various ways. And, and it's all just like, just, it's just a bunch of value for my kid. And I'm sure that's what it is for you too. Um, so I don't, I, it's hard because there's not more detail, you know, it's not like, it's not like my new date wants to, is trying to parent my kid, but I'm not ready for that. Or, you know, my, my ex has a, you know, date that I feel like smoke cigarettes around my kid, or I don't know, you know, we don't know what the, what the, the particulars are, but I think that, you know, and, oh, and, and, and my, co my co-parent parents, my child in a way that like, there's like tons of things that like, I don't, I'd rather not be happening, but it's, again, it's like, it's a losing battle to try to control that. Like the more chill you can be, the more chill and supportive that you can be towards your child's other family, the other half of your child's family, I think it just is the best for you and for the child in the long run. Yeah. Hold on. Uh, <coughs> cough break. Cough break. My own child started squeaking a toy. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's really good advice. And then yeah. how do you talk to your child about the other things that are go on? Like, I just have a sense of humor about it. I just am like, I know, you know, you and Baba like to play Fortnite for three hours, but we just don't do that at this house. And that's that, you know, yeah. and like my authority to be able to just make that statement is complete, you know, like it's not, it's not questioned. It's just like, I just, we have a different style. We do different things. And, you know, my, my um, co-parent also says things like, you know, different houses have different rules, you know, and we know that even from like, when he goes to like my sister's house to play with his cousins, like they, my sister does things very differently. All families have different cultures and different things that are okay and not okay. And so, you know, my sister's family, like my sister, like I'm a bit, I'm more permissive than my sister, 
with her, she is with her kids. My co-parent is more permissive than I am. So it's like, there's just different scales um, and everyone has their own style. And yeah, I just say, you know, and, and I don't know if I'm very, I, I feel so fortunate that my kid is really, um, he just kind of goes with the flow more or less, you know, he really does. Like sometimes he'll just be like, I had so much candy when I was at, you know, Baba's house the last time, you know, and I'll just be like, cool. I hope you enjoyed it. You know? And like, and, and, and I support yeah. that, you know, I think it's important not to be like, well, that's bad. And Baba shouldn't let, you know, I never do yeah. that. I never yeah. ever say anything bad about it. It's always just like, that's what you guys do over there. I hope you like loved all your candy. You can have a piece of candy today, you know, like here and, and you're eating alfalfa sprouts. That's right, kid. Raw alfalfa sprouts. I just been boiling these Brussels sprouts for three hours for you. <laughs> have a bite. <laughs> totally. Dear Sagittarian Matters, how should I approach starting a new chapter in my life with writing a book? And then it says no exp which might be experience. Oh yeah. I think that means no experience. Signed new chapter in New York. New chapter in New York. How should I approach a new, I mean, I don't know. What's your <laughs> book? What's your book about? I, I know a new how chapter. they do it. How do they do I it? I know how they do it. <laughs> they carve out time to work on it that they absolutely adhere to and they do not let themselves be seduced away from the writing of their book by fun friends cute dates expectant you know needy family members whatever it may be whatever it may be no even though everyone in your life wants you theoretically to write your book everyone theoretically will be supportive of you and think it's really cool they will not protect your time no matter how much they love you they just won't that's been my experience they will not protect your time so you have got to be absolutely draconian about protecting your time and saying no to people so if you're a person who has a hard time saying no it's time to toughen up um you got to toughen up you got to say i got to go to work and they'll go wait 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 yeah. i'm writing I got it right. Yeah. Oh my God. The best thing ever was when I, I was working on, I had a, an article due, I was on a deadline and I was, went off to write at a cafe and, um, and I was like, so happy to get to do it because I had a new baby and my co-partner, my co-parent uh, had stopped going to, had stopped going to work. We were in this wonderful moment where they could actually watch the child. So I could go and work on some writing. And I got this text and it was like, Hey, could you come back and sit with the baby so I could go get a tattoo? No. See, I have to be generous with this person when I write about them. Can you see how yeah. hard that might be sometimes for me? Yeah, of um, course. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was just like, I, ac I actually can't do that. Maybe you can just bring the baby to the tattoo parlor with you. Oh so it's just like, you know, <laughs> it's just like insanity, insanity. So yeah, you're, you're going to have to just really say no and, and to people and protect your time. I think that's absolutely the thing that will really make you feel like you've launched a new chapter that it's really happening. And you just got to write your shitty first draft of your book. It's not going to be very good. It's okay to let it be not be very good. Maybe it'll be great. Who knows? But you got to let it not be very good. And just like get, just amass that word count. Yeah. And then revise, revise, revise. And don't really, revise while you're writing. No, That's this my, is, yeah. Yeah. Very important. Don't revise while you're writing. Just get it out. This is my um, favorite, one of my favorite things from the Stephen King book about writing, which I love, uh -huh. which is, write with the door closed, edit with the door open, like just oh. write the thing you're going to write, 
don't do any fucking research. Don't fact check. Don't love it. Don't think about your parents being alive. Don't think about anything. Just do the thing. Get it. Channel it. Get it out of you. Get it out. Then later, then you can tell other people about it if you want to or share or edit or put in the facts and figures, spell the thing correctly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Look for cliches. Mm-hmm. Revise, revise, revise. Yeah, totally. But, you know, all those things like, uh, like you just have to trust that like the word that you just wrote that feels like it hits a sour note. You're like, that's not right. When you come back to it later, it's going to feel that way again. Yeah. You're not going to overlook yeah. it. And so, no. you know what I mean? Like that cliche will jump out at you later and then you can take your time replacing it with something more original. But yeah. if you try to do it while you're writing, you're just going to, cr- your writing is just going to get all like traffic jammed and you're not going to, you're not going to find that state of flow in which, you know, that magical feeling happens and you, and you get to create a lot of work. Oh, Michelle, I have, um, I don't have it with me. It's in the other room, but I have this new phenomenon where I have some students who are new to drawing as adults, they Mm -hmm. drew as kids, of course, and they stopped, but they're using, um, computers to draw. (laughs) about it is it is increasing their desire or like it's like feeding the perfectionist um bug like the ocd perfectionist thing because Mm -hmm. everything can be perfect and it can be erased and redone and sometimes done even perfectly but without like um the thing i was going to read was from the ivan brunetti book about cartooning but it's basically like you don't get to see the evidence of your process and like of the mistakes you've made and like the other choices you made to try and problem solve that. And it's, it's kind of similar. I feel like in writing, like Linda Berry was like, you should write, you should write longhand. You should write everything longhand, which I totally cannot do. I can't either anymore. But, I did for a long time though. I mean, I can do a lot longhand, but just that feeling of like being able to like delete and redo the same word 50 million times with no consequences is bad for the process. Of I agree. Just flowing. There is and a that, consequence. The consequence is you fuck up your process. Yeah. And that's what I feel like sometimes if you can draw a picture that is just perfect, like if like your first yeah. draft of that picture can just be perfect, then I think you're missing a part of the process. Oh, I absolutely agree with you. Yeah. And, and I, I don't know. And I think people want to see the, the humanity and the art and in the stories that we consume, you know, as readers. It's, and it's fun. Like, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what your writing equivalent is for this, but I personally, I try to never throw away a drawing. Like if I'm starting a drawing and I'm like, oh, this is fucked up. I finish it. I make myself finish it because often by the time I finish it, something redemptive will have happened. And it's like giving me, it's giving my brain an opportunity to problem solve. Like, and I just think that that's, that can lead to other pathways in your story Yes, or in your work. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I think the equivalent in writing is like getting into editing and erasing a bunch of stuff, like while you're on your computer and deleting that paragraph because you don't like it instead of just letting it be there and let this thought evolve, like keep writing, let your like evolve through what you don't know where it's going to evolve. You really don't. And there is often a little gem in there. And oftentimes the way you feel about what you're writing is not necessarily reflective of the quality of the writing. Like a lot of times mm. I think something I'm writing is utter shit. And then if I go back to it, I'm like, that's actually fine. It was totally fine. If I had deleted everything, I, I'd have nothing. You know, I would have deleted some good stuff. So yeah. 
We don't have any more advice questions. Michelle, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for always having me. I love being on Sagittarian Matters. We love having you here. It's a highlight. It's a highlight of life. You're our favorite Aquarius. Oh, thank you. I'm honored. Bye. Bye. Sagittarian Matters is produced by producer Chris Sutton. Today, guest produced and edited by Kaya Wilson, with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme song was composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. If you like our show, follow us on Instagram at Sagittarian Matters. Thank you for your support, and we'll see you next time. Ruff, ruff, ruff. <laughs>